welcome back to Seminary Insider. In light of the Advent season, today we're doing something a bit different. We are looking at the themes of doubt and deconstruction. While December is often marked by the reminders of all things merry and bright, Advent also reminds us that this is a time of preparation for the arrival of Christ, and that in this preparation, we often face some of the hardships of life, especially in light of the difficult times of this past year. Ryan Clausen, Executive Director of Act Seminaries, joins us to discuss these topics, examining what deconstruction can look like in our lives, as well as what it means for the church. So, hope you enjoy, and thanks again for joining us. I think one of the things that trips people up when we're talking about deconstruction and the church uh, is the is the fact that there is a sort of a philosophical or literary movement called deconstructionalism. Uh, Derrida, Foucault, and and uh, all of those guys. And it's important to note we're not talking about that. We're not talking about deconstructionism as a philosophical movement. Although there are some parallels or some uh, some borrowing, I'm sure, going on. But when I see what, what people talk about deconstruction uh, as related to the church, especially the evangelical church, is it's really a questioning of those things, those norms that we've been taught and the structures upon which our church and maybe even our faith have been built. And it's often questioning in response to uh, a new situation, something, whether it's in our own lives, uh, whether it's just in the world in general. Um, something that we are discovering uh, that challenges those things that we've been taught, those norms or those structures. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really good to identify that something kind of spurs or initiates this deconstruction, um, maybe on an individual level. Why then is the church so, so concerned with deconstruction at this moment in time? Well, I think we would all be concerned uh, about something that disrupts our usual way of doing things. Um, <laughs> nobody likes change, or very few, but some people like change, but very few of us like change. You know, we can think of our own lives. I think of my own life, and uh, I get set in my ways. I do things that work for me, uh, that make sense. And when I'm challenged, or when those things don't seem to be working the way that they used to work, it's disruptive, it's challenging, and, and our instinct is to double down. Uh, I mean, I think how many times have, have I realized in the middle of an argument, I realized, wait a minute, I'm wrong. <laughs> but I continue to defend my position, uh, yeah. sometimes to the death and definitely to my own detriment. Uh, so why is it so hard even for just for me personally, in the midst of an argument, to admit that I was wrong, and if necessary, to apologize. I think it's the, it's the same thing with the church. And so when the church uh, is challenged for the things it's always taught, for the way it always does stuff, that's disruptive, that's challenging, that's concerning. Um, it, it often elicits that knee-jerk response of... Uh, of rejection um, and an unwillingness to even listen to the questions uh, or challenges that are being posed. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, we're kind of talking about things that might disrupt. What are some examples of what, what 
is getting disrupted? What are some of those norms that are being challenged? I think it depends on it depends on the church, and I think it it depends on the on the person. I mean, my own tradition, uh, which is Mennonite, uh, has largely built our identity on this concept of a faithful remnant. So in, in a broad and overly simplified way, uh, we would say that uh, the early church kind of had it right. The, the first sort of generation or two after Jesus kind of got, uh, they had their struggles, but they, they generally had the, the gist of things in terms of uh, what the church ought to do and be. And then uh, when the church became a state church under Emperor Constantine, that was kind of the fall of the church and, uh, and the church got it wrong. And that went on for a bit, a thousand years or so, 1200 <laughs> years. <laughs> and then we, the Anabaptists, the, the early Mennonites in the, uh, in the 16th century got it right again. We went back to the early church, we figured it out, and, and we've been right ever since. And so we've built our identity on this concept that we got it right 500 years ago. <laughs> but if we got it right then, any change or deviation or challenge to what we do or believe would, by definition, be a, a falling away. Mm -hmm. uh, if, we've, if we've figured it out, then to, to depart from that is to fall back into error. And that's part of the reason why uh, a challenge to sort of our normal uh, beliefs and practices is is so challenging for for churches like that, and I think I can I can say that's true of, of the Baptist churches that I've been involved in as a, a member and a pastor as well. Uh, mm -hmm. The same basic approach: we got it right in the past, uh, and we've still got it right now. And so, any change or challenge is by definition a, a falling away from the. I don't want to say perfection we have, but the correctness, and mm. it's a generally you can only follow, you can only ch any change from perfection is, is to fall away into falsehood. So, um, so that's one of the reasons why questioning or challenging of our norms, our traditional beliefs and way of doing things, causes discomfort. It it can be a challenge to our our very identity, and those things that that form the core of who we. Uh, who we think we are, who we believe we are. Uh, um, I, I might, I'll, maybe I'll use the example of, uh, of inerrancy. Inerrancy has become such a marker or identifier for faithfulness or orthodoxy that for many people that just becomes the center. And, and that's where the discomfort comes from. We identify with this marker so closely, and we identify it so closely with all of the other things it has represented in the past that we can't separate them. So we assume when you question inerrancy, you're questioning the resurrection. And if you reject inerrancy, clearly you're rejecting the resurrection of Jesus and all of those other beliefs that truly are at the core of our faith. Mm. And, and I think that's one of the reasons the church is so uh, leery of deconstruction, because they've made some of these markers, some of these signifying doctrines, um, put them at the same level as our core doctrines. And, and then we become unable to distinguish between the two, or we become unable to say, well, I'm not sure about this one, but I, I still do believe in, in that one. It, it, uh, it becomes so much a part of our self-identity that it questioning uh, this minor doctrine inevitably we take it to mean you're questioning everything um, and that's not 
generally the case at all. Um, How can someone learn what the markers are that matter or how to not equate a marker to the whole of the tradition? Sure, I I think actually uh, uh, the the way I might approach it would be to to ask the question on what is your faith founded uh, or what do you believe in? Six day creation might be, because that is actually, like if I were to look at a story from my journey that would be one like that was taught and it was yeah it was taught that if you um you reject six-day creation you you're rejecting everything there's no if you if if you don't accept the literal six-day creation you know five thousand years ago or ten thousand years ago you rejecting it all and so that might be a a better example a big one i know is hell and we've kind of talked about this before but in the past and huge segments of the church believe that now. And so unless you're willing, and, and some people are, unless you're willing to double down on the fact that only a very few of you, and you're the only ones who are saved, double down on this faithful remnant, the whole church is corrupted, they're all going to hell, except for my tiny little group, um, then you are in one sense, for those who, who find that a difficult doctrine to accept, you're free. You're freed from saying it's it's this it's all or nothing yeah yeah still but it's still within the breadth of the christian tradition as it's existed in, in the past and exists now so yeah in the one sense if, if that is a challenge to you you say i can't believe in eternal con- conscious punishment so that means i must abandon the whole gospel you realize well wait a minute i i don't have to abandon everything i don't have to abandon jesus because of this one this one thing that i that i'm struggling with which going back to maybe the heart of where the deconstruction process starts is so much of the doctrine we have has been given to us um, in ways that aren't always overt. You know, a lot of times we just absorb things from different elements of the tradition or culture. So yeah, um, I guess kind of as we get into more of the meat of this, what are some misunderstandings the church has about deconstruction? Well, I think probably the biggest misunderstanding uh, or fear uh, about deconstruction is that it necessarily destroys faith or it's destructive of, uh, of one's faith, that it, to enter into the process of deconstruction is to necessarily or Im- immediately or inevitably lead to a rejection of Christianity and embrace of atheism. And, and I don't think that's the case. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I, a, a story that comes to my mind um, is uh, that, that I think highlights what, what deconstruction is and how it ought to work is from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, and he says this, this is, a, this is a story about a house and, and a renovation. Um, he's applying it to our own lives, but I think it applies to the church as well. So Lewis says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You know those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking about the house in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. 
you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. So to me, this is the essence of deconstruction, right? If we are going to become the people that God wants us to be, if we are going to truly be people who are conformed to the image of Jesus, then there probably needs to be some fairly significant deconstruction that needs to take place before we can be reconstructed. Um, really, it's, it's, it's a necessary step in growing up. Now, I think most people who engage in deconstruction, at least those who are doing it purposefully, are doing it not to destroy their faith or the church, but to try and make sense of their faith in the light of the world in which they live. It's actually an attempt to continue to live as a follower of Jesus when the previous ways, the way we've always been taught, no longer works. They're attempting to deconstruct in order to allow God to build something better. And that's why refusing to allow them to do so within the faith community, that's actually what turns deconstruction into destruction. It's wow. ironic that in it's, it's actually, I would argue that it's when the church refuses to allow space for that kind of questioning doubt um, that, uh, that we drive people away, we actually bring about the very thing that we fear. If we're fearing a destruction of faith, the worst thing we could do is kick someone out because they express doubts or questions. In some ways, I think this is actually a natural, it's, it's, a, it's a perfectly normal, natural uh, way of growing up. It, it happens to all of us as we transition from our childhood into adolescence and into adulthood. The, the things we believed or the things we knew as children, it's not that they were false, it's that they're incomplete. Mm -hmm. It's that we weren't ready for this next step in reality as a child. So we're given uh, a version that makes sense to us and allows us to make sense of the world. It's not false. It's just incomplete. Mm -hmm. And as we grow, we have to evaluate what we have been taught and believed. And I actually think the church does a good job in teaching our children we've been able to do a relatively good job of, of immersing children in the stories of scripture, helping them see uh, their place in God's story, giving them an identity uh, within this community of faith, including them as a part of this people. Where we struggle is that transition from childhood to adulthood. We don't want to, or we haven't figured out a good way to move from milk to solid food. As the Apostle Paul says, we've been told the stories of scripture as a child would hear them. And we're kind of stuck because we've said that these things are true. And they are. We struggle then when we come to those same stories with more difficult or challenging questions. Uh, the, the story of, of David and Goliath, actually the whole story of David, wonderful stories to tell children. Um, to, to immerse them in the world of the scriptures. When we become adults, those stories become way more complicated. Mm. And if we are unable to move beyond 
the childlike approach to those stories, we're unable to move in our discipleship uh, to the, the next stage that God wants us to, to move into. I think this is tied up to some degree in our understanding of truth or understanding of absolute truth, that if something is true, it's only true in one way. Hmm. And so when we get one message out of one of the stories of David's life, and as an adult, we realize that this, the, the message is actually a lot more complex, by, it, it almost feels like we're admitting that the previous story we told was false because it wasn't complete or it was simplified. What you're bringing up is, yeah, it's very challenging to think this way. And I, I mean, I'll place a lot of the kind of, dare I say, blame on culture and that we do learn to think in kind of the binary or this is true, this is false. And if it can't fit into the realm of true, it has to be immediately rejected. True in a, true in a very scientific way. So if it's not true in a scientific way, it's false and it's out of here, you know? Or even just an acceptance that truth is only propositional. Hmm. Truth is only propositional. Um, and I, I don't think that is a particularly Christian way to understand truth. Uh, I, I think truth is key. Truth is important, but not as mere propositional truth. Right? Truth needs to pervade all aspects of our life, not simply our intellectual assent. And, and in some ways, that's actually, I think, one of the root causes of deconstruction. When people see uh, a gap or a, a dichotomy between intellectual assent to a particular doctrine, perhaps, and a life lived out in the world. And I don't want to call it hypocrisy because I, I don't think it's that's quite accurate. But, um, you know. It's, it still is a, is a challenge for people to see that there's these doctrines that need to give intellectual assent to, but at the same time, those, those doctrines have no impact on one's day-to-day -day life. Mm. Uh, and people are really quick to pick up on those things. So I think in the end, that's why when a, when a person engages in this process of deconstruction as a part of their faith journey, Acknowledging that there is a gap between what they believe or what they have been taught and the way that they live their lives, that's actually a, a has, places a, a higher value on truth than the person who only holds firmly to the, their intellectual assent to those propositional doctrines, right? Truth mm -hmm. is something that needs to encompass all aspects of our life. Yeah. Um, and, and this is why the statement, Jesus is Lord was so subversive in the, in the early church. We hear this in the scriptures all the time. What, you know, one who would say, Jesus is Lord, this proclamation, Jesus is Lord. And, and we learn that this proclamation was actually at the root of a tremendous amount of persecution. Why was this simple statement, Jesus is Lord, so subversive? And it's not simply because of its propositional truth value, but it's because it had a direct impact on the actions of those who proclaimed it. So a life lived under the truth claim, Jesus is Lord, is directly threatening to the political and religious leaders at the time. 
I mean, no one would be threatened by the statement Jesus is Lord if it didn't impact uh, or have a tangible direct impact on how that person related to their neighbor, their government, and their religion. And so to say that I believe this is true if it is not reflected in both our intellectual assent and the way we live our life, then I, I would argue we're not actually giving truth its proper due. So the role truth plays is, it, it, number one, it's a claim that our beliefs and actions are one and the same. And further, though, number two, it requires an honesty with ourselves and with others when that's not the case. Hmm. And finally, number three, a willingness to admit error and make changes. And as I, I said, nobody likes change. <laughs> we, we find it so hard to admit that we were wrong. Um, and I say it's, it's not about being a flip-flopper. It's about growing. It's about acknowledging what is true when you realize it is true and changing accordingly. Mm. You're bringing up great points that I think really reframe a lot of the way this conversation is being held entirely. I think especially the, the example of Jesus is Lord. I mean, I remember as a child hearing it as a phrase and, and yeah, and knowing it was important, wanting to, yeah, um, you know, assent to it and saying, yes, I believe this. But I think my motivation as a kid, of course, was not, there was no understanding of its history. There was no political agenda at play in my, I mean, I was a kid, it was more that, oh, this is important. I should do this to follow God, you know, or something like that to just say it, that it's true without any understanding of, I mean, in a way, the only place we, you know, we use Lord now is often within a religious context, you know, and, and, and in that sense, it has lost the meaning. I'm sure it had when that phrase originated. So, Yeah. No, I, and I, I appreciate the, 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 the point you made. You, you, you say this as a child and you didn't really know what it means. And I wonder if <laughs> we might benefit from assuming that we're probably not much better off as adults than we were <laughs> as children in terms of grasping something with absolute certainty. Again, I think this is this is related to that the, the idea of honesty and and uh, and being honest with ourselves and with others when uh, when we understand something improperly, we realize that we're wrong. To be able to to say, you know, I've been wrong before, and when I was instructed on my error, I changed. Hmm. So it's possible. In fact, it's almost certain, given the fact I've been wrong in the past, that I'm wrong right now. And all I need is for someone to show me my error. Hmm. And then I am willing to change. Yeah. Um, I, one of the theologians I've, I've, I studied, uh, his name is Balthasar Hubmeier, one of the, uh, the early Anabaptist theologians. Uh, he had a saying. He had two sayings. One was, truth is unkillable. Wow. Um, and in, in that sense, he was affirming the, the fact that no one, regardless of what they try to do, can, can kill the truth, can, can, can kill the, the truth of what God is doing in the world, who God is and what God is doing in the world. The truth of God is unkillable. Um, and so he had a very high 
regard for truth, but he had, I think, an appropriate regard for his ability to discern truth. And so his second saying was, I may be wrong, after all, I'm human, but I desire to be instructed in the word of God. And so a heretic, I can never be. Wow. Understanding a heretic as someone who willfully persists in, uh, in, in error of belief or action once that has been pointed out to them mm. in scripture. So he said, I, I clearly, I can be wrong. I'm human, but I can never be a heretic because I always seek to be instructed by the word of God. Mm. Um, and so to me, it's this proper, this holding of truth, I would say firmly, but loosely mm. to say that I hold firm to the truth, recognizing that my perception may be wrong. And I may need, in order to continue holding the truth, I may need to let go of the thing I thought was true once I realized it, it isn't. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. So um, in, in kind of examining this, you know, for those who are deconstructing, obviously some things could likely change and, and changing understanding of truth, looking at things differently. And that's very scary. <laughs> Um, I know from asking some questions myself and seeing this on other people's journeys as well, I guess I'll say, um, first of all, how do we then approach uh, this deconstruction as, as a community? How, how should we handle it? I, I think the first thing we as a, a faith community, as churches need to do is reassure people that their fear is unfounded. And I mean that in two ways. I think one of the big fears people have in exploring these aspects of, of their faith and doubt and question um, is the fear of rejection of their faith community, right? Mm -hmm. They fear that if I bring up these questions or I bring up these doubts, I'm going to be rejected. And, and part of that, it's our own fault. We've, we've made these, we've made specific doctrines often a whole set of doctrines, sort of prerequisites for belonging to this community. This community is where you believe this, 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 and this. And if you doubt any of these things, just move on, right? There's no place for you here. And so I think the first step is for churches to provide space for people to express their doubts and their concerns and the things that they're struggling with without fear of being rejected or ostracized uh, or cast out. Um, I think that's, that's probably one of the biggest things that, that keeps people from, from really exploring these, these things in a way that's productive. You can, sometimes you can't get where you need to go without the assistance of someone else. Mm. If you, only are if you're forced to confront your concerns and your fears and your doubts by yourself you can never move past them and eventually you say it's not worth it i'm just going to abandon this whole thing it's like i can't get i can't get where i need to go but walking with others you'll find the path they'll help you find the path mm. that's that's one the other and the other thing is to, i think it's it to break out of this this the similar paradigm or understanding of god that God is offended 
by our questioning or is put off by doubts as if, you know, while you clearly don't have enough faith that, that uh, you know, you're, you're going to question this. Um, and this is where reading the Psalms has been really helpful for me. If you, if you read the Psalms, the psalmist, in essence, the psalmist is engaging in this kind of deconstruction. The Psalms give us permission to mm. doubt, to question, even to be angry at God. Look, this is happening in the world and it makes mm. no sense. I'm questioning everything I have believed and taught. I'm questioning the law. I'm questioning the prophets. I'm none of what you have said in your scriptures makes any sense because of what is happening to me. Like that's just about every Psalm is a de- like almost every Psalm is a deconstruction. My enemies are winning. The evil are prospering. Your word says this, but I can't see that anywhere in the world. Hmm. So what do I do? And I think that in and of itself gives us permission, in fact, requires us to engage in that in that same activity if we want to be faithful to our own selves and our experience of the world. And the other thing, the, the, the final thing with the Psalms that have, that have helped me is that in most of the Psalms, the problems that the psalmist brings up, they're not resolved at the end of the psalm. We often think they are, but if you actually read it, mostly they're not. Mostly it's the psalmist looking back and saying, you know, I've read this stuff in your word again, and I'm thinking back to all of the things that you've done in the past. I'm thinking back to those episodes in my life where you've been active, and I may not have recognized it at the time. And so even though this makes no sense, I'm going to continue to follow you. Enemies are still winning. The good people are still losing. The world doesn't make sense. The things that you say in your word aren't happening the way you said they should. But I will still follow you. Yeah, yeah. To read that and then to have permission to express ourselves in the same way as as we uh, interact with God and interact with our fellow Christians, I think goes a, a long way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'll I'll say from personal experience, taking time to engage some questions for the first time in my life that previously I could, it's like so funny. I could only treat them with like an apologetic standpoint. Like I was not, it was like, I cannot even touch it. I just have to regurgitate the answer that I know to give. But, but it's because I know that I was scared to engage with it, you know, because it is, yeah, it does seem like pretty high stakes. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, talking about psychological elements, if rejection from your core community is one of the elements, there's a lot of motivation for not engaging right there, let alone, you know, maybe other uh, stakes in the afterlife, what have you. Yeah, and I mean, it just, like I said, change is, is, change is difficult. And sometimes it well, maybe for me, it, it, it could also be laziness. Like, I don't want to put the work into this scene. This is what I've been taught. This is what I believe. I don't want to put the work into, into trying to figure out. Like, it, it doesn't make sense anymore. But trying to find something that does make sense, that's a lot of work. <laughs> I had this happen once when I was writing a paper in seminary. Mm-hmm. I was writing a paper from a particular perspective. And I'm doing my research. And I've got the introduction written. And I'm starting to go through 
And about halfway through the paper, I realized that all of the evidence pointed to the opposite conclusion that I had, <laughs> uh, that I had started uh, out on. And I'm already most of the way through my research. I'm halfway through the paper. It's due in a little, you know, in a, I don't have a ton of time. Mm-hmm. I just don't have the time and energy to rewrite the whole thing. Um, and <laughs> come to a completely different conclusion. So in all honesty, I, I wrote the paper. I just ignored those things that were contrary to my, my prejudged conclusion and, and only cited those things that were in support of it and, and handed in the paper. Um, I mean, I knew that the paper, I, I didn't believe what I was arguing in the paper. I I had come to the opposite conclusion, but it was too much work to rewrite the whole paper. And and maybe (laughs) that's true in our lives too. This is what we've always been taught. It's easier just to not think about these things that seem to be contrary to uh, to what we believe so yeah yeah and something in my I mean you know I'm doing this on my own project as well something I have come up against is truly some people are not I mean to, in a lot of ways it's a very academic undertaking or at least a very intellectual undertaking to kind of uh, pick apart the different doctrines their meanings their implications how they come to be understood culturally the psychological elements at play there's a lot that is tied into it I think there's something beautiful to, yeah, just this, sometimes the simplicity of just being faithful and that being enough. Um, That being said, I think for people who are in positions of leadership positions, especially, um, yeah, within, you know, church contexts, I think there's a responsibility there. Yeah. And I mean, it, it reinforces the importance, I think, of, of community of walking with each other Um, and it goes both ways for someone who doesn't need to deconstruct their faith for someone who um, whose faith uh, does allow them as it's as it's constituted to make sense of the world and to function as a follower of Jesus Um, and you often find that actually in the deconstruction community if there is such a thing but those who who write on this um, I've I've seen and heard sort of that, that question, like, you don't seem like you've deconstructed your faith. Are you actually a Christian? You know, you haven't gone through this deconstruction process. I'm not sure if your faith is, is true. Hmm. Um, or even, even had someone, um, I, I, I saw someone write you or, or say, you, you don't seem miserable enough. I'm not sure that you're taking this faith seriously enough. And then sort of <laughs> have to stop themselves and say, well, well, wait a minute, I guess just because I'm going through a, a challenging and difficult time as I deconstruct my faith doesn't mean that you have to be miserable for you mm. to be truly taking your faith uh, seriously. Yeah. Um, so it, it, but that's where a community walking with each other is so important yeah. uh, because neither do we kick people out who doubt and question, nor uh, do we do we minimize or ostracize someone who doesn't have that same need to have these existential questions answered and to have their their beliefs their beliefs are are not insufficient. Yeah, yeah. their life is not unfaithful, hmm. and so this struggle isn't at this point a necessary part of their discipleship of their following of God. So 
but it's it's walking with each other um, in in that community, accommodating people at all stages uh, of their journey. Yeah. So there's two sides of that. First, I think you kind of already pointed to of um, of you know you're you're not miserable enough, or you haven't asked the honest questions. And I've seen that, I've, and I I kind of get that. But on the flip side, I'll actually say too, I've seen the kind of thing and maybe even more in the charismatic traditions where it's like, oh, well, if you're going through this, mm, you're probably not spiritual enough. And a little bit of a weird shaming in that direction. Um, And I guess I basically just wanted to hear what your thoughts on that was, uh, because that can be very scary to be, what's wrong with me? I'm having these questions. I'm not having the spiritual experience like others. Yeah, and I'm 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 always more hesitant to speak to elements of a tradition that I'm not uh, a part of. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, a part. I haven't uh, been a part of a of a Pentecostal uh, church or tradition. Uh, so I'm, but I if I can if I can take that more broadly and and expand it to the the sort of what you might call sort of the health and wealth gospel i think that's something i feel a little bit more comfortable speaking to mm-hmm. in the sense of yeah that's a like that's a well, i'll say that's an insidious that's an insidious approach it uh um again it 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 makes doubt into a sin mm. uh, and it makes struggle into a sin and I, I, it's rooted in a in a gross misreading of scripture. And again, I say a failure to read things like the Psalms, like Lamentations. Um, so uh, I don't know if that really answers, but yeah, I mean, and you, you get that in in all traditions too. The the um, just even just being implication. If you undergo suffering, it's because of something wrong you've done. This tragedy befalls you because you clearly did something wrong. And so you need to make amends um, for this thing um, before even something worse happens to you. Mm. Uh, and again, we, we have the counter example in scriptures of Job where these, these disasters befall Job, not through any fault of his own. And so it's not a sign of God's disfavor. And I don't, again, I don't think we risk God's wrath by questioning like in the end, Job questions God. Um, I would even argue in the end, Job fails the test. Job does not remain faithful to God. Uh, mm. But that's okay because God remains faithful to Job. Our, no. our salvation, our standing with God is not dependent on our faithfulness, mm. but on God's faithfulness. So again, I think we greatly overestimate the likelihood that God will be offended by the things we say or do, or the the expression of anger and doubt and confusion or whatever is going to be taken, I don't say taken personally by God, but like again, it's it's those those our, our our salvation is not, again, I can't emphasize this enough. Our salvation is not based on our own faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of God. Mm. Um, so we, even if one were to say that expressing doubt and challenging these beliefs or these practices is sinful, 
and is wrong, the fact remains that it's God's faithfulness is what our salvation is, is based. Mm-hmm. And so our lack of faith does not jeopardize our salvation because God is faithful. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the passion. If we are faithless, he is faithful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the, even if one thinks that deconstruction is wrong, there's no reason why that jeopardizes one's salvation or standing with God. We're all unfaithful in one way or another. It's the faithfulness of God that our salvation is built on. Wow. What a beautiful and encouraging message that I needed to hear today. (laughs) Um, Man, that's awesome. I'm excited to share that. Uh, I will, I will say one little thing that's kind of related. What the one, you know, path of deconstruction is you know obviously there's someone who can kind of wrestle and stay within the tradition but there is the possibility and i've seen this and actually a lot of people have kind of told you is just people who are done who are pretty much convinced i mean a lot of them i've seen become agnostic if not atheist or just like this is developed through culture i mean you know the reasons why i don't need to familiarize you um but really think it's the most intellectually honest way to be despite, I mean, some of them, you know, having served in very high positions in churches and whatnot. Um, Now some people too will come out of that. They'll be bitter and they'll be kind of over it. There's that tone, but for those who are just like, I'm not bitter. I'm just, I'm just not convinced or I'm just out. This is how it is. I guess two questions. One, is there still room for the atheist within a, within a Christian tradition um, like how far is the standard, you know, and I know we're saying, you know, believing in Jesus is often that one standard, but how far is the standard? And then also, you know, how do we continue to hold people as friends who are in those positions? How do we continue to uphold them as members of our community? Cause I think that's, that's the challenge for those who, are scared themselves. They don't want to be influenced. You know, they don't want to be, they don't want to leave the faith, but they also don't want to be unloving. I mean, again, it's quite a wrestling thing. I don't know. I just want to hear your thoughts basically. Yeah. And this is probably one of those areas where I hold a variety of beliefs that may or may not be compatible. (laughs) Uh, and I think that's okay mm-hmm. to say that I believe this and I believe that, and I'm not sure how those two things make sense, but I, I'm not convinced that either of them is false. Mm-hmm. So I've always understood salvation to be uh, deeply connected to being a member of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so In one sense, that's why I think it is so, so vital that we make room for people in our community of faith who are experiencing doubt or questions, Mm -hmm. because this is the body of Christ. This is the place where where God meets us, where we we read the word together, we uphold each other in prayer. This This is the body of Christ on earth. And if so, someone wants to be united with God, the way they are united with God is through the body, be a member of the body of Christ. Um, and so I place a, a very, very high value on the church 
mm-hmm. um, and the importance of of being part of the church if one is going to follow Christ. Yeah. The challenge, of course, is that churches are so often um, imperfect representations of the body. If we we imperfectly represent Jesus, and in some ways we we drive people off that Jesus does not want driven off. And sometimes we make space for people that 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 ought not to be there. That's the, mm-hmm. the, the flip side of that. Um, so that's the the so the, the reason why I think it's so important that again churches make space for people to doubt and question is because I, I think that's the primary place where we are going to encounter Jesus is as members of the body. Mm. On the flip side, I want to recognize that the, the final judgment is God's and God's alone. And mm. so where is the place for those who, um, who have maybe at one point embraced the church, been a part of the church and through the sinfulness of, of our, of our actions have been, turned off uh, from the body and are just intellectually or psychologically or emotionally um, incapable of participating in this community because of the, the, uh, the damage or the hurt they've experienced. And it's not my place to judge them and their eternal status. That is still God's prerogative. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to usurp that. So if someone asks, what is the status of the atheist or what is the status of uh, this person or that person who's become an agnostic or left the church? Uh, it's not my place to say they're not a part of the body of Christ right now. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the whole point of the of the final judgment. Um, and leaving that in in God's hands. Mm. So again, as I say, there's there's two things that I that I want to hold here that don't necessarily make sense. Traditionally, the church is or the, the in in the Christian tradition, often the church is compared to the ark, right? Mm. There's no salvation outside the ark. Mm-hmm. So salvation is found only in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a sense in which that's true. The, the church is the body of Christ. Are you united with Christ? Then you're part of the body, part of the church. Can you be united with Christ? No. Out, outside of the body? No, you can't. In one sense, I want to affirm that. On the other sense, on the other hand, I recognize the sinfulness of the church and, and possibly excluding people that ought not to be excluded. And I want to say that it's not my call to say that this person is outside of, of, of God's salvation. Um, it, one thing, an image I found somewhat helpful, and again, this comes back to the early Anabaptist uh, um, uh, leaders, um, the image of the keys of the kingdom. Uh, when Jesus uh, said to Peter, I, I give you the keys of the kingdom, what you... Uh, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and, and what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Um, at the time, it was sort of understood the keys of the kingdom were sort of the keys of Peter, the keys of Rome, the keys of the Pope, right? So the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church 
understood it, that the, the church, uh, the Pope had the, uh, the keys to the kingdom. If you look at the coat of arms of the Vatican now, it has two keys crossed on their <laughs> coat of arms. Those are the keys of Peter. Those are the keys that Jesus gave to Peter uh, for binding and loosing. And, and the early Anabaptists understood the keys of the kingdom to have been given to the church, not as, as to Peter alone, but to the gathered congregation. And so when the congregation baptizes someone and so brings them into membership in the body of Christ, God affirms that decision, right? What we, what we join with the church on earth through baptism, God joins uh, with the body of Christ. And what we, uh, when, we, when we bind someone or when we excommunicate someone or we say officially as the, as the church, this person is excluded from the body of Christ, that God honors that decision. Um, where the, where it kind of takes a little bit of a turn is it, it says in the end, what happens is the, the church gives the keys back to Jesus mm-hmm. and Jesus is the one who then makes the final decision at the last judgment. So I don't know if that forms a good balance or not, whether you say that there are actual, I say it affirms there are tangible impacts for the church's decision. So when the church excludes someone, it recognizes that that is that has a tangible impact on this person's life and relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully in a positive way in that it eventually draws them back, but quite possibly in a negative way. Mm. And it acknowledges that the church may make this decision in error. Mm. And that decision though, still has a real impact on that person, even if, it was a decision made in error. Mm-hmm. And so that's the significance of the church having those keys or that authority is it actually has the ability to dramatically impact someone's life. Mm-hmm. Whether you say that's because God has given this church authority and is, is, is sort of is acknowledging that those decisions have, have real impact. But in the end, saying that the final decision, this is, this is an interim decision. This is a decision that we make as best we can, recognizing that in the end, God is going to be the one who makes the final decision. Um, And so we give the keys back when Jesus returns uh, for Jesus to make that that final decision. And we'll see some of the decisions we made were right and some of them were wrong. Oh, who would ever want the weight of, I would not want the weight of that really. Well, exactly. That's, but I think it, the, the point is that, it emphasizes the, the significant responsibility that we have as the church in how we, how we engage people and how we do or don't give space for people to explore their faith. And so if we're bringing it back to this deconstruction thing, we see the results of the church improperly using the keys to exclude someone whose only sin is wanting to ask questions that we maybe don't want to bother answering. Mm -hmm. But we've made, by making that decision, we have had a dramatic and tangible impact on that person, maybe even sending them further away from Jesus. Mm -hmm. And God doesn't necessarily overrule that decision here and now. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, by 
using that authority to give space, to draw people in, to allow for uh, people at different stages in their journey with different ideas and understanding to be a part of this community, um, we open the doors to that, to that relationship with Jesus, that, that membership in, in, uh, in the body of Christ. Um, again, having a tangible and real impact on, on people in a way that, that isn't in line with, with God's will. So, but that's part of participating in God's mission. Mm-hmm. I've, I've said this before, I've said this in other contexts, but I would say it doesn't, I don't really understand. God has decided to work through the church. God has decided to work through us as Christians to accomplish God's purpose. Terrible decision, horribly inefficient. Like, if God has a mission and a purpose for the world and for creation, using us to help accomplish that mission, I don't get it. It doesn't seem to be working terribly well, but I guess that's why God is God and I'm not. And for whatever reason, God has decided to work through us. And so on the one hand, that is a burden to Mm -hmm. say that God has uh, enlisted us to participate in what God is doing in the world. On the other hand, it's a freedom because God has enlisted us to participate in God's mission to Mm -hmm. the world. So our job is to participate. Mm -hmm. Our job is to work with God. Our job is to be faithful. And the actual accomplishing of the mission, that's still God's job. It's not my job to make things come out right. It's not my job to make sure things happen according to God's will. My job is to see where God is working to try and work in the same way and participate in, in God's mission to the world. Mm. Um, and God's the one who's going to make it come out right, mm. which is, which is freeing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know uh, it's, this is, this is really good. Um, because it's true. And I see myself falling into it. The temptation is to get all the answers still uh, and just be like, you know, here, here they are, and boom, 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 da, da, da. Um, but yeah, I think the challenge that I, that you present that that inspires me hearing it to kind of rise to the occasion is to take on that very uh, daily responsibility of of asking the question, you know, what is my part today? And um, did it remind me of the line from the Lord of the Rings about not everyone wanting the <laughs> wanting the the burden or the journey? Yes, it did. <laughs> but that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Well, and actually mentioning the Lord of the Rings, I anytime you can fit Lord of the Rings into a podcast like this, that's again, I think that highlights though, like, did Frodo accomplish his mission? I I would say no. Like, no, he failed. Frodo yeah was incapable of accomplishing the mission in the end. The mission was accomplished. I mean, however you want to to frame that, but the mission was accomplished, but not by Frodo. Frodo did everything that Frodo could do, but it was not and never was within Frodo's power to accomplish the mission that was given him. And I think that's, that's, it's, I find it again, to be be helpful in certain ways to say that we've been given a mission that is not in any way within our power to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we're faithful as best we can. Mm-hmm. And we acknowledge that if it's going to happen, it's because God's going to do it. It's not within our ability to, 
to accomplish. But it doesn't it doesn't mean we can stay at home in the Shire. <laughs> right? We've been no. given the task. It's beyond us, but yeah. we can't turn away from it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I know it's uh it's been a substantial and important conversation when, yeah, the challenge is the challenge remains. The questions have not all been answered, but have been also addressed in a way that provides a lot of hope and food for thought. I think that's important, you know, and I, I obviously there are many other questions to come from this and I'll just say, but I do think, yeah, it's, it's provides a different sort of perspective than what, um, is often offered and that's really essential. Um, but yeah, any, uh, I guess in light of that, any final thoughts to sum it up or any encouragement, you know, for, for the church or anything, anyone else? Yeah, I, I think we should, there's no reason to live in fear of, of deconstruction. If, if, uh, if someone is, is sincerely asking questions, is seriously looking to explore how the gospel can make sense of their day-to-day -day lives, that needs to be embraced. I think there's, there's a few things just that I've found helpful. In some ways, I, I feel like I've, this, this deconstruction has been a, a relative constant in, in my life. My, uh, right from the beginning, my mother was, was involved in always questioning, always pushing, always asking um, you know, the implications of what I was saying and doing um, and, and open to those kinds of wide ranging discussions. Uh, and so this has just been kind of part of my life. Uh, uh, and it's not that I don't have strong convictions, but as I've gone through my life, I've seen the value in, in asking questions, being open to doubt, um, because that's what leads to, to real knowledge, to real truth. Um, it holding on to something you know is is false. That's 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 no way to live. Mm. So a couple of things I say: just be willing to live with cognitive dissonance. Mm. It's okay to believe two things that either seem to be contradictory or just don't seem to be compatible, but neither of them seems false. Mm. And and that's okay. You don't have to. Uh, have that kind of absolute certainty. It's okay to say, I don't know. I'm not sure. This seems true. That seems true. I'm not sure how they fit together, but neither of them seems false. Eventually, maybe I'll figure it out or I'll figure it out when Jesus returns. Uh, <laughs> and, and so that's, but that's living in a provisional state, uh, saying that I believe this now and I, I believe it's true and I'm going to live as if it's true, but acknowledging that I've been wrong in the past. Mm. And so it's quite possible that I'm wrong now. Yeah. And I just don't know it. And that again is what it means to be human, what it means to learn, to grow, to develop, to, to refuse to stay in a, in a, in a state that God doesn't want you to stay in. So live in a, in kind of that provisional state again, We'll figure it out when Jesus comes back. We don't need to have absolute certainty before then. We just never will. Mm -hmm. And the final thing I would say is that we, we need to walk with each other and recognize that questioning is not the same as rejecting. And recognize that rejecting one thing is not the same as rejecting everything. Mm 
So we need to give space for the spirit to work in our own lives and in the lives of our fellow followers of Jesus. And, and knowing that that work is going to look different mm. for different people. We're all on different stages of the journey. And the certainty that I've reached through struggle, through trial, uh, through difficulty, someone else, I may not be able to convince them of that without them going through the same process mm -hmm. and giving them space for to engage in that process that, that I've probably engaged in in the past and been given space myself. Um, there's actually a, uh, one of our professors at Axe Seminaries, Brian Cooper, he's written a little bit about this on his blog, um, which is bdrcooper.com. So I'd encourage anyone to, to check it out. But there's a few lines I just, uh, that, that made uh, an impact on me when I, when I read it the other day. And he writes, what, what do we do to help one another as disciples? We help one another in terms of processing what we can control so that we grow in faith and become more like Jesus. We may do this in words, but we do it at least as much by example. Hmm. Jesus did. Do we have an idea of what this will look like in our lives and those of others? Perhaps. But we should allow space for us to be wrong sometimes. We are always learning, even as we are always growing. And he writes, there's this parody proverb that says, the floggings will continue until morale improves. And unfortunately, too many Christians have convinced themselves that this describes an effective way to motivate people towards godliness. The early Christians did not win converts by being dour or worse judgmental, but by effusively showing love to others, even those who hated them. They affirmed others because they recognized that those who were drawn to them were yielding to the Spirit's invitation. Why else would they draw near to this small sect of followers of this failed rabbi named Jesus? Mm. And he ends with the question, what is it about your fellowship that draws people to you? Thanks again for joining us today. If you have any questions, feel free to contact us at axeseminaries.com. Have a good rest of your day.